As you're heading back to your seats, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. Once again, it is good to be back with you all. I was telling one of the brothers in the church earlier, I, I'm thankful for the breaks away from, from Newbury, but I, I hate being gone from this place on Sunday, so I'm excited to be back with you. Excited to be back in the book of Esther. Uh, we have this sermon and one more sermon left in our series through the book of Esther, a series that we've entitled Esther, a story of God's providence. And you might be thinking, well, we're just at chapter five. There are 10 chapters. How do we only have two left? Well, this morning, we're going to kind of work through Esther chapter 5 through the first part of chapter 9. So this is kind of, uh, we're going to take a 30,000 foot view of this, but uh, I think you'll understand why we're going to do that as we work through it. But but I do, I'm not going to read all of Esther chapter 5 through through chapter 9 as we begin, but I want to invite you to stand and I want to read into your hearing Esther chapter 5 beginning in verse 8 and reading through chapter 6 verse 3. So when you've arrived there, will you stand out of reverence for God's word? Esther chapter 5 beginning in verse 8 and we're going to be reading through verse 3. Scripture records this. Esther is speaking and she says, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has asked. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him, for he was filled with wrath. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther... Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of, of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands to King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who had attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And this morning, I want us to consider the idea of God's providence over your enemies. God's providence over your enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would give me physical and spiritual strength as I seek to preach your word to your people, for we are ready for you to move. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. God's providence over your enemies. You know, growing up as a child, uh, like many of you, Saturday mornings, that was my favorite time. Saturday mornings were the best. There was no pressure, no school, but more importantly than all of that, there were Saturday morning cartoons. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. See, my kids are never going to have to know the struggle of Saturday morning. You had to sit through all the dumb cartoons to get to your one cartoons, and you had to deal with all the commercials, and you might have forgotten, but there's no skip button on the TV. I remember recent, recently Emery was watching something on TV with me, and these girls are so spoiled, I'll admit it. They've got their iPads they can play on, and we're watching a show on TV, and the commercials came on. She was hot that you could not skip that commercial. She said, Dad, is this an ad? I said, well, we call these commercials. They'll, they'll never know that struggle. But Saturday morning, some of y'all know, oh, it was the best time for us. From 9 a.m. to noon, that was ours. Now, afternoon, it was pointless because they did those animal shows and nobody liked those. But from 9 till noon, man, that was for us. You sat down in front of the TV. You grabbed a bowl of cereal. You got lost in the show that you were watching. They were the best. They had all your favorites. For me, it was the X-Men cartoon. The X-Men cartoon, that's where it was at. Again, we didn't have Disney+. Plus. When I found out they had X-Men on Disney+, Plus, I did in one week watch all of the X-Men cartoons again. It did not hit as hard as it did when I was nine years old, but I still watched them. I loved that cartoon. And whatever happened in that Saturday morning episode of X-Men would dictate how I'd play for the rest of the day because I'd reenact the story outside with my friends because they watched it too. We'd add to it. We'd create our own backstories. It was the best. We loved that time. And as I, I reflect back now, I recall that the shows that grabbed my attention the most of all the cartoons that I watched, they were always these shows that had a two-sided conflict in it. On one side, you had the good guys. And then on the other side, you had the bad guys. And there was something about those stories that just resonated with me. There was something about the bad guys plotting to destroy the good guys and then the good guys figuring it out. And the added bonus, the best episodes, were when the good guys used the plans and the weapons of the bad guys against them. That was the best. It resonated with me. But I think to some degree, stories like that still resonate with us a little bit, don't they? I remember sitting in the movie theater, oh, because I went and saw it when Endgame came out. Y'all remember movie theaters? We used to be able to go to those. I remember sitting in the theater, and that scene, listen, I'm going to ruin it if you've not seen it, but at this point, you failed if you've not seen it anyway. But at the end of Endgame, y'all know what I'm talking about. Thanos thinks that he's going to do it again. It cuts to Tony Stark, Iron Man, and he has the Infinity Stones on his his glove, the very weapon that Thanos was going to use against him. And he snaps his fingers and he wins. When that happened, man, that theater exploded. Expl cheers, laughter, people jumping up and down. There's something about those kinds of stories that just resonate with us. And I think the reason for that is because we have this sense of justice instilled in us. 
We know that evil should not triumph. We know that righteousness should be rewarded. And that understanding that is innate within us comes from being made in the very image of God because our God is a God of justice and righteousness. And so in our text this morning, we see this about God. It's one of those stories, though unlike Saturday morning cartoons, it's not made up for our entertainment, but it is a story in Scripture to show us just how sovereign our God is, even over the enemies in our lives that think that they have power over us. That even when it comes to our enemies, God's providence is at work. So when we ended a couple weeks ago, last time in Esther, Esther was faced with a predicament. I'm not going to go through the whole story of Esther. Um, if you don't know it, uh, read it up until this point. But basically, Esther is, she was faced with the decision, you remember? So she found out through Mordecai the plan that had been made through Haman with the king's approval to kill not only Mordecai, but the Jews as well on the 12th month on the 13th day. Now remember, when that went out, it was the first month. So you've got a whole 12-month span. A decree goes out. That's how sure the king was of his power, that he's going to tell the people a year in advance that on this day, on the 12th month, the 13th day, that all the provinces, all the rulers have authority to kill all of the Jews. And, and, and Mordecai communicates this plan to Esther, and she did not realize it. And so, and so Mordecai says, you've got to go before the king. And Esther says, well, hold on a minute, Mordecai, there's a problem. I can't just go before the king if the king doesn't summon me to come before him. Because if I go before him and, and he doesn't extend his scepter, he doesn't welcome me into his presence, then it's going to cost me my life. And you remember what Mordecai says, maybe, just maybe. God has placed you in this position for such a time as this. And so when we ended two weeks ago, we were reminded that Esther has three options. Die now, die later, or perhaps be used by God as the means of deliverance for his people. So what does Esther do? She says, all right, Mordecai, go gather all the Jews that you can find in Susan, all of them. And what I need you to do is I need you to fast and pray for three days. I'm going to fast with my servants for three days, and then I'm going to go before the king. And at the beginning of chapter 5, we learn that the king welcomes Esther into his presence. So in Esther chapter 5, verse 2, it says, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And so, so that is the symbolism of the king welcoming her into his court. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that much because remember, the king loved Esther. Even though the means by which she came to this position were painful and sinful, the king Ahasuerus, he loved Esther. And we see it because the king says to Esther when she comes into his presence, Esther, what do you need? I mean, you, you just kind of see his love for her flower. He says, you can ask for up to half my kingdom and I will give it to you. And Esther replies and she simply says this. I want to throw a banquet for you. I don't want a bunch of people there. I don't want our servants. All. I want to throw a banquet for you, but I want you to invite Haman to come. And so the king agrees and Haman agrees as well. 
And this left Haman feeling great about himself, of like, of all the people, right? She, she's throwing a banquet for the king, and she invites one person, just me. And so at the beginning of verse 9 in chapter 5, it says, That day, after that banquet, Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But then, as Haman is leaving the banquet, feeling great about his position, who does he see once again standing at the gate? That pesky Mordecai. And then we read the rest of verse 9. It says, but when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Now let's just pause here for a minute. It takes some kind of hatred to take you from the highest high to the lowest low by merely seeing a person. Right? I've been in some moments where I felt really special, right? Like I got to do something or be around somebody uh, that I know everybody else would want to be around, but they didn't ask you, they asked me to hang out with them. And, and you can kind of have that mountaintop experience, so then something happens, like, it doesn't matter, because you know who I was hanging out with earlier? That's not Haman. He hates Mordecai and the Jews so much that after, after experiencing the reality of his prominence as the second in command, he just sees Mordecai by the gate. Mordecai's not doing anything. He's not talking to him. He's not insulting him. He just refuses to bow down. And it fills him with rage. And Haman is reminded of how much he wants Mordecai dead. Now this actually leads to the first truth that I want us to consider as we think through this idea of God's, God's providence over your enemies. Here it is. The presence of enemies does not mean that we are being unfaithful. The presence of enemies does not mean that we are being unfaithful. You know, there are some Christians in this room who I think honestly need to hear this. I'm not quite sure where we got this idea that to be a Christian means that everybody's going to like you all the time. That you're never going to have any enemies in your life. Because when I look through the Bible, I just can't find that. I do not see a verse that tells us that if we are faithful, we will never face an enemy in this world. In fact, I see evidence quite to the contrary of that. You can look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 where it says, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By who? Not your friends. By your enemies. David King David, a man after God's own heart, speaks of his enemies in Psalm 57 verse 4 and says, I am surrounded by lions. That's what he calls his enemies. He says, I am surrounded by lions. I lie down among devouring lions, people whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. In this life, brothers and sisters, there will be enemies that will rise up against you for a whole host of reasons. That's Mordecai's story. Right? Mordecai didn't do anything wrong. He was seeking to be faithful to God. He was refusing to bow down to a man and as a result has cultivated an enemy who has been given the power and authority to not only kill him, but to kill all of the Jewish people along with him. I mean, leaving this feast after being filled with joy, all Haman does is see Mordecai by the gate and he's filled with hatred and anger. So much so, 
This is incredible, so much so that he decides that this edict, this declaration that he got the king to sign that says on the 12th month, in the 13th, on the 13th day, all of the Jews in the kingdom are to be killed, including Mordecai, that's not good enough for him anymore. He wants Mordecai to die now. There are real enemies in this world. And some of you know this intimately well as you sit in this place. Some of you have that person at your job that just seems to always have it out for you. You come in, you do your job, you don't bother anyone, but for some reason that person wants to see you ruined. Some of you may have enemies in your own family that always want to tear you down and paint you in a bad light to the other members of your family. Some of you have people in your life that you have strived to love well and yet they are convinced that you are the worst person in the world. Even as I mention the reality of enemies, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that some of you don't have people that pop into your mind right now. Maybe they're jealous, maybe they're bitter, maybe they're proud, maybe they just have it out for you. But again, the Bible never says that faithfulness will prevent you from having enemies. And maybe that's not you, and maybe you're here saying, I I don't have any earthly enemies. Well, that's fine. We all have a greater enemy, a spiritual enemy, and he too is like a lion who is prowling around seeking someone to destroy. What what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is just because you are being faithful to Jesus, it does not mean that everyone's going to like you. But before I move on, I'd be remiss if I did not at least mention this. I know this probably isn't the case for new breed. We got it all together, right? We We don't make mistakes. But humor me for a moment. Maybe the reason that you couldn't think of any enemy in your own life is because you are the enemy of someone else. And I want to caution us to make sure that we are not fighting the wrong people. Maybe you are that person that just can't seem to ever stand it when somebody else succeeds. Maybe you're that person that gets jealous of the platform or the position that somebody else has been given that you don't have. I don't know. Maybe some of you walk into this room and see the pastor standing up here and get jealous that it's not you in this position. I'll give it to you. You can have it. We have to be cautious that we're not the person despising someone else because of the good things that God is doing in their life. I mean, that's just an honest heart check. When someone comes and tells you and wants to rejoice with you about the amazing things that God is doing in their life, are you able to rejoice with them? Or are you bitter and angry towards them because God didn't do it for you? It's one thing to have an enemy, and you can't control that, but it's another thing altogether to be the enemy, and we have to be on guard. But please hear me. 
The presence of enemies in your life does not mean that you are being unfaithfulness, but faithfulness in regards to our enemies. Again, it's not determined by their presence, but what will determine faithfulness is what we do with those enemies. Just as the Bible is not shy to reveal the presence of enemies, it is also not silent about how we are to respond to our enemies. Take, for example, Jesus' teaching. It's probably the greatest example I could give in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Or you could go to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. <clears throat> it says, don't gloat when your enemy falls. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? Don't gloat when your enemy falls and don't let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. Again, love your enemy. You see, Jesus is a prime example for us. He had real enemies. His enemies beat him. His enemies spit on him. His enemies crucified him and they nailed him to a cross. And what was his response? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, when our enemies become known to us, we have one of two options. We can either love them or fight them. But what the Bible calls us to do is to love them. And you may be thinking, well, Michael, well, how in the world am I going to overcome my enemies if I can't fight back? That's a great question. Newbreed, you are so smart, and I'm glad you asked it. How did you know it was going to lead to my second point? Here's the reason that we don't have to fight and we are freed to love. God is fighting for us so we don't have to. God is fighting for us, so we don't have to. I, I don't want you to miss this in our story because this is, this is amazing. This, this got me. I, I, so let's, let's try to understand this. So, so Haman goes to the feast with the king and Esther, right? There's just three of them there. He's overjoyed at his position. Remember, Haman's second in command, right? Nobody, nobody is over him but the king. He has all the authority. He can carry out the king's plan. I mean, the king even said people need to bow down when he walks by, right? This is a guy who has a high position. And so he gets invited to this banquet. It's Esther, the king, and him. He's basking in his glory. And he leaves the feast. He sees Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't do anything to him. He doesn't say anything to him. But, but, but Haman is so filled with hatred that he knows he can't wait any longer. And he has to kill Mordecai. So what does Haman do? He goes, home he calls his wife he calls his friends and he plots against Mordecai look at Esther chapter 5 verses 12 through 14 it says then Haman said even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king so so not only was he invited to one banquet Esther's throwing a second one for just the king and Haman again. Like, this dude is on cloud nine. But look at what he says. Yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Here it is, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. It's some kind of brokenness that the only way you can 
enjoy the position you have is by the downfall of someone else. So here's Mordecai, right? Look, we can't miss it. He's minding his own business at the gate. He's doing his job as a lower official because Esther's the queen and she got him this role. He's just trying to be faithful. Haman walks by. He's filled with with rage. The sun starts to go down. So what can we assume about Mordecai? Now, this is an assumption I'm making on the text, but I believe it's a fair assumption to make. See, Haman goes to his house to plot. Mordecai goes home because it's nighttime and he sleeps. But not Haman. He's up all night plotting how he is going to ruin this man. He is up building gallows at his very own house in the middle of the night so that he can hang Mordecai. But can I tell you this? Haman's not the only one who was not sleeping that night. Because look at the beginning of chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. Now, we talked about this in the first sermon in our series. Some would look at this and see merely a coincidence. Sure, a lot of people don't sleep at night. I had a rough one last night, fam. No reason, just couldn't sleep. Probably too excited to see y'all. We might think it's not that significant. Well, well, let's keep reading in chapter 6. So, so again, verse 1, on that night the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Again, we might read that and think, not a big deal, probably not y'all because y'all are so academic and smart. Books don't put you to sleep. But some people, when they can't sleep, like myself, they'll grab a book. I tend to like Baptist history. Puts me right to sleep. So the king says, listen, I can't sleep. The king's in a little bit better spot than we are because we got to read our own books to ourselves to try to follow. Not the king. He's the king. So he says, go and grab a book. Doesn't matter what book, just get a book and read it to me. So they say, I know, we'll get the book of memorable deeds, the good things that have happened. Maybe the king can go to sleep with a smile on his face. But look at verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This is starting to seem a little bit less like a coincidence and more like providence. Of all the records that that they could have turned to, Of all the pages that they could have read, they happened to open it to a page that recorded something that happened a few years ago. Do you remember it? At the the very end of chapter 2, it only had a few verses in our story. It seemed somewhat inconsequential in the grand story. But Mordecai, he overheard a plot. You remember this? I mean, this is years before. So a, a, a few years have taken place from when Esther became queen and Esther chapter 2 to where we are in Esther chapter 6. And and so so Mordecai's doing his job at the gate. He overhears of this plot to assassinate the king. He goes and tells Esther the plot. And so Esther communicates to the king, your servant Mordecai overheard this plan to kill you and wanted it to be made known. And so they investigated. They tell us that he investigated it. They found to be true. And so both of those men were killed. And and do you remember, though, what happened at the very beginning of chapter 3, immediately after the plot is foiled? It says, chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. 
to Agagite, the son of Hamdatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, do you remember when I preached that a few weeks back? I made it a point to emphasize it because I knew I would come back to it. Do you remember I said, Haman, you're going to elevate Haman? After Mordecai just saved your life, you honor the other guy who didn't do anything? Oh, but church, if there is not a lesson there in that for us. Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, the reason that God is not blessing you now with the blessing that is due is because he knows you'll need it more later. Perhaps you are not being honored now the way you rightly should be honored because God knows that in just a few years' time, the honor will mean more to you then than it ever could right now. Don't think for a moment that God has forgotten you. Don't think for a moment that God has failed to remember his promises to you. Maybe, just maybe, our God knows the right time a little bit better than we do. Peter says it like this in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. It might seem like the Lord is holding out on you, but if he has promised... He is faithful, and his timing is perfect. And we see that here in the story, because here we are a few years later. And what is the king reading? He's being reminded of the fact that Mordecai saved his life a few years back. And this is what King Ahasuerus says in verse 3. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Okay, now track with me here. Haman's plotting. He should be sleeping. He's plotting and building gallows in the middle of the night at his home to hang a man. The king, in the middle of the night, sleep is failing him. He can't sleep. And he's being reminded at the same time as a man is seeking to kill Mordecai, how Mordecai saved his life. And what is Mordecai doing in the midst of all of this? He's sleeping. Okay, I got one, but you missed your amen on that, so I'll preach it to myself this morning. Okay, listen, Mordecai is sound asleep in the middle of the night, not because everything is going his way, not because he has no enemies. Mordecai is asleep even though there are people at that very moment plotting his demise because he serves a God who does not sleep or slumber. And you know that word slumber is a funny word because sleep means sleep, but slumber means more of that like not nodding off and you can't focus and pay attention like some of y'all were doing until I just said that, right? What, 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 What the Bible is telling us is not only does God not sleep, but he doesn't lose attention for one second from what's going on in our lives. And Mordecai has his head on the pillow asleep because his God does not. He serves a God who has proven that he will fight for his people. And brothers and sisters, hear me. Some of us need to stop thinking that we gotta figure out every hard situation we find ourselves in. Some of us need to stop lying in bed at night, running through every possible situation and scenario and try to think through how we should respond. Even when your enemies are at your door, you can rest assured that you serve a God who is wide awake. 
Can I tell you this morning that God will fight for you? God has already been fighting for you. You know, I have to believe that God fights for you more than you may ever realize. Perhaps the reason that you were running late for church this morning and your child had to go to the bathroom one more time and you were frustrated, maybe, just maybe, God knew that if you had left on time, you would be driving through that intersection at the very moment that that driver ran that light and God was fighting for you. You might not ever see it, but maybe. Maybe, just maybe, the reason you got passed over for that promotion at your job is because God has something better for you that you would not have been looking for if you would have been, because you would have been comfortable with the pay increase. Maybe, just maybe, I mean, imagine with me that you made it home that night that you were out late and didn't get mugged because God prevented that person from even seeing you. And I know there's people who can testify that God has been fighting for them in some, of their, in some of the most unique ways. You don't even have to agree with all that. I got a call this week from our dear sister Crystal who told me a story of how God was fighting for her. She said, you know, my husband's been saving money. Good job, Charles. Way to save some money, brother. She said, I want to spend it, but he's saving it. And they had finally saved enough to replace some windows. And so they called the man to come and replace the windows. And it just so happened that that man had just recently had a gas leak. And so as this man is in their basement replacing the windows, he gets a headache. And he says, you have a problem. I think you have a gas leak. And Crystal, being our dear sister, Crystal said, no, I don't. You're wrong. But they called anyway. And they came and checked it out. And sure enough, there was a major gas leak in their basement. And the Lord, in the midst of some window replacement, was fighting for his children. Don't tell me that God is not fighting for you in ways you don't even know about. Mordecai had no idea what was going on, but God was fighting for him. Mordecai was sound asleep because he believed the words just like David wrote in Psalm chapter 3, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me, many say about me, there is no help from him in God. For him and God, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. And then David says this, I lie down and sleep and I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. Can I plead with you this morning to stop thinking that you have to do all that you have to do all the fighting by yourself? When your enemies slander you. When your back is against the wall, when there seems like there is no way out, believe that there is a God in heaven who is not nodding off. He's not asleep. And believe, and this is hard, that God will vindicate you in his timing. I think that's why we fight so hard, because we always want to be seen in a positive light at every moment. When somebody says something that's not true, we want to prove them wrong. We want to fight back. When somebody accuses us of something we didn't do, we want to fight back. But, but we've got to trust that the Lord, we've got to believe Psalm 135 verse 14. It says, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. But the Lord may not vindicate you when you want to be vindicated. But the Lord will vindicate you exactly when you need to be vindicated. And if the Lord will do that, then why do we have to fight so hard? 
But look at this. This is incredible. The Lord's not even done fighting for Mordecai. It's not just that he's going to defeat Mordecai's enemies. God's going to honor Mordecai. You see, Haman thinks he has won. And this is crazy. It's a little creepy to me too. But so around the time that the king is being reminded about Mordecai, it's the middle of the night, Haman shows up at, at the palace. Haman's just hanging out in the courtyard. It's the middle of the night. They're finishing the gallows at his house because he wants to first thing in the morning make sure the king knows that he wants to kill Mordecai. He can't wait for the morning to come so that he can kill his enemy. And so let's pick up reading in chapter 6, verse 4. It says, and the king said, who is in the court? So he's just asked his servants, what did we do for Mordecai? And they said, we haven't done anything for Mordecai. It's the middle of the night. And I don't know if the Lord prompted him or if he heard something, but he said, hey, who's that in the court? And it says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Again, Mordecai's asleep. All this happened, he's asleep. Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman misses it, okay? He doesn't understand what's going on. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight in to honor more than me? And so he's saying, I'm going to live it up right now. The king's, everybody's honoring me. Esther invited me to a banquet. Now the king wants to honor me. I must be doing something right. And so verse 7, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights in, uh, delights to honor. And let, let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Well, Haman doesn't have much of a choice left at this point, verse 11, so... Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. Who dressed Mordecai? Haman dressed Mordecai. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I was left asking the question, I wonder if unbeknownst to Haman, maybe he's talking about a different king. But it says, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. All this took place while Mordecai was asleep because his God was fighting for him. But let me show you one more truth as we consider God's providence over your enemies. God will use 
what is meant for your destruction to be your deliverance. God will use what is meant for your destruction to be your deliverance. Let's pick up there the very last verse of chapter 6, verse 14, and read through chapter 7, verse 10. It says, while they were talking with him. So, so Haman, right, he's at his house. He's telling his wife, his wise men, this ain't going to go well for me. And they're like, it's, it's not. It says, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Remember, Esther had a second feast. It says, so the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther on On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me from my wish and my people from my request. For we have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. But then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And then the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, remember, he's the one that really liked Esther. He said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Our God is a God of providence. Haman got figured out. Esther was bold in her declaration before the king. Save me, save my people. We have been sold to death. And the king who loves his his queen said, who did it? Who was it? And she says, that man right there, which that, that takes some nerve. And so the king's furious, right? You saw he got up and walked out from his wine drinking. And we know our king likes to drink. So it takes a lot to get him to stop drinking. Remember chapter 1, it was 187 days of drinking for this man. But he stops drinking, walks out. And so while he's out, Haman thinks, this is it. I can plead my case before the queen. And he throws himself down at her feet. And a king walks back into that moment and sees him not as pleading, but perceives that this man's trying to attack my wife. Esther didn't have to say anything. They put a hood over his, his head. They hang him on the very, on the very weapon. That was to be used against his enemies, against the Jews. And he's killed. 
The very gallows meant to kill Mordecai were used for the destruction of his enemies. And there's so much more, and I'm, I'm running out of time. I knew I bit off a lot by trying to do all of these chapters, but let me try to summarize for you how, how, how God will use what is meant for your destruction to be your deliverance, because there's even more that goes on. So after Haman is killed, Mordecai is elevated to his position, to Haman's old position. He is second in charge under the king now. And, and so Esther, she requests, she, she, she finally makes her, 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 her request to the king. And Esther requests that the king send out another decree, that he will allow the Jews permission to fight back on the 12th month, on the 13th day, when all the provinces and all the kingdom are, are, are set to kill and annihilate the Jews. Esther says, please, just just send out another decree and give them permission to fight back. Let it be known that the Jews can, can, can return against their enemies and fight back if someone comes against them. And the king, and the king I don't know if it's out of love for his wife, I don't know if, if it's shame for being duped by, by Haman, he agrees. And so look at this in Esther chapter 9 verse 1. I want to jump over there real quick. Esther chapter 9 verse 1. It says, Now... In the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same. So we know what was supposed to happen on the 12th month, on the 13th day. The Jews were supposed to be killed. It says, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. Oh, here it is. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Isn't that just like our God? Tell me our God is not a God of great reversals. We see it here in Esther, where the plot that was meant to be for the destruction of God's people, and don't underestimate the weight of that. Not only is that the destruction of God's people, it's the annihilation of the covenant. And what does God do? A great reversal. We, we saw it in the story of Joseph. We've talked about it a couple of times, way back when, remember that Joseph, he's loved by his father. He's given this, this really cool bathrobe that's got a lot of colors on it. And his brothers get jealous because he's the youngest. And so they sell him into slavery and tell their father that he's been killed. And he ends up in Egypt. And it's a tumultuous time. It doesn't go great for Joseph. He finds himself in prison on trumped up sexual abuse charges. But in the midst of that, God is working. And so through all of this, Joseph ends up finding himself in the house of Pharaoh, interpreting a dream and being elevated by Pharaoh to a position of prominence. And lo and behold, who has to show up in Egypt because of a famine in the land? His brothers. And his dad later, you're right. And the very weapon that was to be for Joseph's demise ended up being deliverance for the people of God. Genesis 50, verse 20. You planned evil against me and God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. But that's not, on, that's not the only great reversal. You see it with Paul as he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. One of the greatest persecutors of Christians becomes one of the greatest Christians used by God for the edification of the church and the spread of the gospel. But nowhere, absolutely nowhere, do you see a, 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 a reversal as great as that with the life of Jesus Christ. 
I'll make no mistake about it. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ is the greatest reversal that God has ever done. As he used what was meant for destruction to be our deliverance. They beat him and unbeknownst to them, as Isaiah writes, every stripe was a mark for our healing. As they beat a crown of thorns on his head, the very thorns that came as a result of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus was taking our curse upon his head. They nailed him to a cross and they hung him high, not knowing that he was our mediator, the one who hung between heaven and earth to pay a blood debt that we owed. And as he died, all of hell celebrated. They had finally destroyed the Son of God, but in the greatest reversal the world has ever seen, three days later, Jesus walked out of the tomb, and the death that the enemy thought was the end of our hope proved to be the death of death. And Jesus walked out of that grave with authority and complete victory. Our greatest enemy has been defeated by the very weapon he thought he wielded. And you and I have a confidence and a hope that because of what Christ has done for us, we can be made right with God. Our sins can be forgiven and we can be adopted into the family of God. And please hear me, church. If God can do that against our greatest enemy, surely these lesser enemies are no match for his muscles of omnipotence. And if that is true, You and I can lay our heads on our pillows at night, even in the midst of great uncertainty, even in the midst of pain and trial and heartache, even when there are enemies all around us, because we can know that God is fighting for us. We are reminded by Paul in the book of Romans that because God is fighting for us, there ain't nothing in heaven and earth. There ain't nothing below the earth. There is no power. There is no enemy. There is no weapon that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And if that is true, go to sleep at night, trusting that God has providence over your enemies. What a God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, you are in control. God, I forgive us for those moments where we, where we think that our future and our good and our hope depends on our control. But God, help us to rest in the fact that you are a God who is sovereign. You are a God of providence. God, you are prov- you are. You are sovereign over our pain. You are sovereign over our position. You are sovereign over our defining moments. You are sovereign over our enemies. And yes, they will come. But God, I pray that we will cling to the fact that you have already overcome. That you are a God who fights for us. And in those moments when we doubt, I pray that we would look to the cross and be reminded that though our sins separated us from you and and we deserved nothing good from from you, you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay the debt that we owed. And in the greatest of reversal, the weapon that Satan thought would end the Son of God turned out to be the weapon of our deliverance. 
And we can come through faith and repentance and find hope and joy and life in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Help us to rest there. When so much seems uncertain, help us to rest in the certainty of the hope that we have because Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Give us grace to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.